Well, congratulations. Today is the final day of Esther. You have made it through yet another very challenging book, and I hope that it has been encouraging and it has built you up in the faith. For me personally, it has been an incredibly challenging book uh, to prepare for and to preach from. But as we always say, we want to be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God, and that includes books like Esther. So we're going to begin in chapter 9, verse 20, and finish it out today, if you will. I'm going to read, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore... They called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the appointed time every year, that these days should be remembered And kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority. Confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts and their lamenting, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Midia and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. 
For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The story of Esther concludes by inaugurating what is known as the Feast of Purim within the Jewish calendar. Now historically, the Jewish people have always done a really good job of looking back and remembering how God worked in the lives of their nation. We, however, are not quite as good as this. In our fast-paced world, it's difficult oftentimes for us to remember the ways that God has worked in our lives. Unless we journal, you know, we write it down, or we're intentional about celebrating it. And God knew this about human beings, which is why in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, he tells Moses and the Jewish people to celebrate certain feasts throughout the calendar year as ways to remember how God provided for his people. Of course, the most famous one is the feast of Passover, which is explained in Exodus chapter 12. When on the evening before the 15th day of Nisan, the Israelites sacrificed a lamb. They took the blood, painted it across the doorposts, and when the angel of death came through to slaughter all the firstborn in Egypt, God passed over the houses of the Jewish people. And so that festival, the festival of Passover, was celebrated and is still celebrated every year by Jewish people to remember how God passed over them during that time in the Exodus. Another popular feast is the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the culmination of the Exodus at Mount Sinai. It's celebrated 50 days after the Passover, and it included giving grain offerings and a holy convocation. Now, the feast that we are discussing today, the Feast of Purim, is not mentioned in Leviticus 23 because it hasn't happened yet in the history of the life of the Israelites. I said last week, as we finished up most of chapter 9, that because God set apart a people for himself, he will never abandon them completely from their enemies. No matter how dire the circumstances and no matter how long it takes, he will be faithful to his people. And that's demonstrated when the Jews defeat the Persians and through the authority and power of Esther and Mordecai. But in our text today, I'm arguing That because God is faithful to his covenant people and he constantly provides and cares for them, it is fitting then that his people respond in praise and worship. And this is demonstrated through the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim is a reminder to all of us that we should do two things. Number one, Celebrate God's provision, but also, number two, remember difficult times. So the Feast of Purim reminds us to celebrate that God provides for his people, but number two, to also remember the difficult times that we experience. Now the text informs us that Mordecai recorded and sent letters to all of the Jews regarding this celebration. Both the 14th day and the 15th day of Adar were to be celebrations. 
And this is because earlier in chapter 9, which is what we read last week, that Esther had requested an additional day for the Jews in Susa to be able to carry out holy war against their enemies. So while the Jews in the provinces celebrated Purim on the 14th day, the Jews in Susa had to wait another day. So we have two days of this celebration known as the Feast of Purim. And what were the Jews to celebrate on this special day? What were they to do? Verse 22 tells us. Look at it again. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So through this feast, the Jewish people were praising God for sparing their lives and for granting them relief from the oppression of their enemies. Think back just a few chapters earlier when the Jews realized that they would be slaughtered because they were Jewish. These originally would have been days of mourning and days of death, but now they have become reasons for celebration and reason for life because God spared them this great death. And we're told that not only did they feast together, but that they would send gifts of food out to friends and also to the poor in the various communities in which they lived. The thinking is, since God had been so generous with them in sparing their lives, they returned that generosity to others through the sending of food and gifts. Just like we prayed a moment ago before our offertory prayer. Because God is generous with us, we now are generous back to him. And this is what the Jewish people celebrate still to this day during the Feast of Purim. And all of the feasts, all seven feasts mentioned in Leviticus and Purim are designed to give praise and worship to God for what he had done for his people and how he provided for them. Now, the question for us is, we don't celebrate the Feast of Purim, so how often do we stop and reflect on all that God has done for us and how he has provided for our needs? Individually, how do you go about doing that? If I'm honest this morning, I will confess I don't do this enough. I don't take the time often to stop and reflect consistently about how God has provided for my needs, for my family. And while I could name all sorts of excuses as to why that is the case, it should be a regular part of my worship of God. Psalm 77 illustrates this so well, beginning in verse 11. It says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. 
you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Perhaps even right now, you might want to jot down a way that God recently has provided for you or your family. And take some time, maybe even this afternoon or sometime this week, to reflect and meditate on God's provision for you. Even in the celebrations that we do have as Christians, we are always tempted to make the focus something other than God. At Easter, it can very quickly become about the clothes that we wear, the Easter photo, the meal after church, posting pictures with the hashtag, He is risen, instead of remembering the resurrection of Jesus. At Thanksgiving, it can be about making sure the casseroles get cooked. And by the way, that's very important. Watching the Lions and the Cowboys on TV or getting that traditional, at least for me, Thursday afternoon Thanksgiving comatose. And then at Christmas, how prone are we to think about all of the parties, all of the gifts being off of school or work, and all the various family traditions that we all have. And we neglect the only reason that we really should be celebrating Christmas, and that is the birth of our Savior. A fun thing to do would be to sit down this week, individually, with your family, and think hard about the very tangible ways that God has provided for you through the years. And if you can remember the dates, perhaps you should make your own family festival as a way to set aside and remember, this is how God provided for me in this moment in my life. Whether it be the day that he converted you, and brought you from darkness to light. That should be a celebration, if you can remember the date. Or perhaps the day you were told from the doctors you have been fully healed of cancer or some disease. Or perhaps the day you had a huge spiritual breakthrough and God revealed something to you through his word or through your time with him in prayer that you want to jot down and remember, this is the day that God taught me this in his word. Perhaps it's the day you joined this church, whenever that might have been. When we we really begin to sit down and think about it, we can actually come up with a number of milestone moments when God took care of us. And as you reflect and begin to think, hopefully you will remember that God is always a God who provides for his people. And in verse 23, the author tells us that the Jews, they obeyed Mordecai. And they made these special days a regular part of their worship of God. This feast was a way to remember God's provision in their lives. But just as important, number two, this feast was also a way for them to remember the difficulties that they had experienced. Normally, in our human minds, on the other side of the difficult circumstance is when we truly learn to be grateful. 
I seriously doubt, as the Jews were getting ready to experience this impending death, that they were grateful. But yet after it happened, and God spared them this evil, it allows them to go back and remember how God took care of them during these difficult times. And verses 24 to 26 of chapter 9 are the reminder of the difficult time that the Jews in Persia experienced. I'm going to read it again. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them. So, as we're going to learn, a part of this festival is actually the reading of the entire Esther narrative. The edict that Haman sealed with his signet ring in Esther chapter 3 was probably the scariest moment the Jewish people had ever faced. And yet, the deliverance from their enemies in Esther 9 was probably one of the most joyous moments the Jews had ever experienced. So while the Feast of Purim is a celebration, it is only a celebration because of the terrible circumstances that the Jews had experienced. The word Purim comes from the Hebrew word for lot or die, which Haman cast earlier in the narrative to determine the day for which the Jewish people would be extinct. So the argument I'm making is, while it is a celebration of relief from their enemies, it is just as much a time to remember the difficult times. So think about it. When God allows you to go through hardships, once we get on the other side, we often don't want to return to those memories. We don't want to talk about that season of our life, but we probably should. Because it is through those experiences that God reveals himself, that he shows up, that he provides. God teaches his people valuable truths through the suffering and the difficult circumstances that we experience. You can ask any brother or sister in Christ who has experienced suffering, and you'll get the same answer, that God always reveals himself through difficult circumstances. He uses these horrible moments to teach us more about his character, more about his attributes, more about his love and his grace and his mercy. While the Jewish people could still have known that God was faithful to them without Haman's edict, it becomes that much more important and that much more real 
because of what they endured. See, I can preach all day long to you, even to myself, about how faithful God is and that he will provide for my every need and for your every need. But when you actually have to functionally rely on that truth, it becomes real. I can preach all day long the truth of Romans 8, 28, which it is true, which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work for those who are called according to his purpose for our good. We can believe that conceptually, which we do, but it's only when we have to functionally live it out that it takes root. When you've been given the cancer diagnosis and you've been told that it's stage four, Romans 8.28 in that moment is either going to stay a concept or it's going to become rooted in your heart and soul. I distinctly remember as a junior in college when anxiety came crashing down upon me. And up to that point in my life, I was pretty much a carefree guy. But for the better part of really two years, I was scared and I was anxious almost all of the time. I had days when I didn't want to get out of bed and I could not find any reason why I was experiencing it. And yet, even though I hate to think back about those days, when I do, I'm reminded of God's faithfulness and how he brought me through that season of my life. And I wouldn't wish it upon anybody, and it wasn't easy. And yet in those moments, God revealed himself to me. He took everything that I believed conceptually about him and his word, and he said, I'm going to see if you actually believe this functionally. Even though if he never gives us a reason, if he never tells you why you're going to experience what you're going to experience, guess what? Even if you never figure it out, he's still faithful. He still loves you. Tim Keller, now I have to say, used to say, R.I.P. He said this in one of his books on suffering. He said, just because you can't find a reason why God would allow you to suffer or experience pain doesn't mean that there isn't one. And you know why? Because he's God and we're not. And if we could intellectually always come up with an answer as to why we suffer, then we would, in a sense, be playing God. So even in those moments when you really don't have any idea why God is allowing you to experience trials and suffering and difficult circumstances, it doesn't change the fact that the God that we worship is good and that he's faithful and that he will remain true to his people. Stephen Sharnock, an old Puritan guy, wrote a really big work on the existence and attributes of God. Here's what he says about God's goodness. God is infinitely good, a boundless goodness that knows no limits, a goodness as infinite as his essence, not only good, but best, not only good, but goodness itself, the supreme, inconceivable goodness. That is who 
we worship. If we can believe that God is fully love and fully gracious and fully merciful, then why can we not believe that he's fully good and that he's fully faithful no matter what we might endure? And so this feast of Purim was a way for the Jewish people to, yes, celebrate how God had provided for them through relief from their enemies, but also to remind them the difficult circumstances that they were involved in. And while none of us ever look forward to difficult circumstances or to trials, we can at least pray and ask God to teach us more about who he is and more about his love for us when those experiences do come. If the goal of the Christian life is the glory of God, which it is, then we as his people worship him and trust that all things work for good. As this book concludes in verse 28, the narrator tells us that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Even today, if you find an Orthodox Jew, an Orthodox Jew the festival of Purim is still celebrated. And on the morning of the festival... Families gather around, and the entire scroll of the book of Esther is read. And children dress up as characters in the story. And when Haman's name is mentioned, the children make loud noises with homemade shakers. Annoying shakers, by the way. And that's intentional. So parents, imagine the most annoying toy that your child has or has ever had. And when you think of that toy... It should remind you of Haman. That's what happens in the festival of Purim. It is supposed to be this annoying and horrible sound to remind the Jewish people of how evil Haman was towards God's people. And gifts are collected and given out to family and friends and given to the poor. And it is only the Jews in Jerusalem who celebrate on the 15th day of Adar while all the other Jews celebrated on the 14th day. And in verses 31 and 32, it's clear that Esther and Mordecai would make sure that Purim would stick with the Jewish people. It reads that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts, fasts, and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Mordecai and Esther wanted to make sure that for all generations, for all of time, the Jewish people would give credit to where credit is due. Mordecai and Esther rightly understood that they were merely instruments that God used to prove that he is sovereign over his people. 
So through the implementation of this feast, we are reminded of what we have said from the very beginning of this study, that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. The God that we serve is faithful. But for Christians, you and me, the Feast of Purim points us to a day of even greater deliverance than what we read about in Esther. And it is the deliverance from sin and death. The Jewish people throughout history continue to have conflicts with other world powers. So while Purim is a celebration of relief from the Persians, it's not a celebration of ultimate freedom. Orthodox Jews today, they still celebrate Purim as they await the Messiah to come, who we already know has come. The holy war that Esther and Mordecai accomplished through the killing of Haman and his sons wipes out any trace of the Amalekites and fulfills God's promises mentioned in Exodus 17, which we've talked about many times. But another holy war took place many years later that trumps this holy war. One commentator said it like this, all of the ugliness and pain of the entire history of holy war were concentrated in six hours of awful agony and the burning darkness of the cross. His body was not merely tortured and brutalized by the Romans to the point of death, but was exposed to cosmic shame by being hung on the cross. Like Haman and his sons, Jesus' body was hung on a tree. The ultimate sign of God's judgment curse. On the cross, Jesus fully bore God's curse upon our sin. Why? So that we might receive peace through his righteousness and have rest from all our guilt and sin and access into the life-giving presence of God. Look at the final verse of this book. Verse 3 of chapter 10. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Mordecai is one of the greatest figures in the life of the Jews. And yet Jesus is better. Jesus is the better Mordecai. He is greater among the Jews and he sought the welfare of his people and he brings peace to those who are far from God and he does it through his death and through his resurrection. But unlike Mordecai, who was second in rank to Ahasuerus, Jesus is not second in rank. He is eternally equal with the Father and the Spirit. And he now sits at the right hand of God. And one day, Esther, Mordecai, Ahasuerus, Haman, and everyone in this room and around the world will bow down to Jesus because he is 
the true king who always provides for his people. Let's pray. God, no matter what we might experience, no matter what we might endure, give us hearts and minds to believe practically what we believe with our mind, and that is that you always care and love and are faithful to your people. And that is demonstrated through the sending of Jesus to die the death that we deserve in our place for our sins so that any who repent and believe in faith can be reconciled to you. So God, make it take deep root in our hearts. And for any who are here today that do not know you, I pray that your spirit would plant gospel seeds that would grow into fruit and that people would turn from their sin and place their faith in you. We thank you that in your divine providence, before the world was even created, that you knew that your people needed the book of Esther. And the experiences that your people endured many years ago were needed even today in 2023 to be reminded of your providence and your goodness and your faithfulness and your love. So we thank you for this book and the beautiful inspiration from your spirit that it brings to us as we read it and study it. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.